Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Today's sermon, this week's featured sermon, has the title Apostolic Exhortation from Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. It was preached on the 5th of April, 1868, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. It's uh, an interesting sermon on a number of levels. Uh, First of all, it lacks some of the verbal flair, if you like, that is typical of Spurgeon. It's less poetic in its uh, in its form, in some of its communication, but it makes up for that in directness, in plainness, and in weighty substance. As you may know, if you follow along with us, each week we read a sequence of Spurgeon's sermons, the uh, usually seven at a time from the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. This week we're in sermons 801 to 807. Then, each week, we select one of those sermons as a, a representative sample of Spurgeon's output, and that featured sermon is the topic of our podcast. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, you can find us at mediagratii.org podcasts, where you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll get a link to the week's sermon, or you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, where you'll find more or less daily quotes from some of these readings. But back to this week's featured sermon. Spurgeon seems to have the, uh, the people who are in front of him very much upon his soul. To the Christian minister, he says, it should never be difficult to speak of Christ, and in whatever position he may be placed, he should never have to ask himself what is an appropriate subject for this people. For the gospel is always in season, always appropriate, and if it be but spoken from the heart, it will be sure to work its way. That's Spurgeon's heart, and it's a reflection of Peter's heart in Acts chapter 3. He draws our attention to how Peter directs the eyes of the people from himself and his brother John in the aftermath of that miracle that they had performed uh, to the Lord Christ himself. Why do you look upon us, says Peter, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? And, says Spurgeon, the object of the Christian minister should always be to withdraw attention from himself to his subject so that it should not be said how well he spoke but upon what ma- but upon what weighty matters he treated. And I wonder if that's why perhaps in this sermon Spurgeon's got this more stripped-down style. He wants it all to be about Jesus Christ. Not that that isn't true at other times, but there's a particular concern here that he should decrease and that Christ should increase. And then... It's noteworthy, says Spurgeon, that Peter, in addressing this crowd, came at once to what he calls the very essence and bowels of his message, the the very heart of the matter. This is the very strength of the Christian ministry, says Spurgeon, when it's saturated with the name and the person and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take Christ away and you ungospelize the gospel, but do but pour out husks such as swine do eat while the precious kernel is removed, seeing you have taken away the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's not afraid of being personal either. He doesn't shirk the touching of men's consciences. He rather thrusts his hand into their hearts to make them feel their sin. He labours to open a window into the darkness of their spirits to let the light of the Holy Ghost shine into their soul. 
Nor, says Spurgeon, did Peter fail when he had enunciated the gospel to make the personal application by prescribing its peculiar commands. Spurgeon has in mind now a school of men, he says, who say that they rightly preach the gospel to sinners when they merely deliver statements of what the gospel is and of the result of dying unsaved, but they grow furious and talk of unsoundness if any venture to say to the sinner, believe or repent. This is the hyper-Calvinistic school against whom Spurgeon contended as much as he did the Arminians of his day. There, I say, he says, in that promiscuous crowd, gathered together by curiosity, attracted by the miracle which he'd wrought, Peter felt no hesitation and asked no question. He preached the same gospel as he would have preached to us today if he were here, and preached it in the most fervent and earnest style, preaching the angles and the corners of it, and then preached the practical part of it, addressing himself with heart and soul and energy to every one in that crowd, and saying, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So that's going to be Spurgeon's line, and that's going to be Spurgeon's tone. And again, as we've said, there's this stripped-down style that the preacher is receding, perhaps deliberately. He's uh, almost uh, willfully taking a step back, and he's making sure that this is a plain speech about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's reflected not just in his style, but also in the form or the structure of the sermon. It's four points. It lacks uh, a little bit of the elaboration. And again, that's not pejorative. Um, the elaboration, the, the spelling out of sub points, there's a directness to the whole thing. It's really only the second point when he works through the arguments that Peter uses with his, his hearers that he begins to uh, develop things. Otherwise, it's straight thrusts to the soul. In that respect, it actually feels like quite a short sermon. It is, I think, maybe slightly shorter than some of his more typical productions, but, but not that much. But that structure and that directness gives the sense of, uh, of moving on swiftly through these four basic points that he works out. And so the first of those points that he wants to make, the first remarks which he's going to make, is that the apostle bade men repent and be converted. And he says that's, that's evident from the text itself. And then he begins to unpack this language. Repent signifies in its literal meaning to change one's mind. He talks about the, the little rhyme from a children's hymn book. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. And then there's this superb brief definition. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. Conversion, if translated, means a turning round, a turning from, and a turning to. A turning from sin, a turning to holiness. A turning from carelessness to thought, from the world to heaven, from self to Jesus. A complete turning. The word here used, though translated in the English repent and be converted, is not so in the Greek, says Spurgeon. It's really repent and convert, or rather repent and turn. It is an active verb, just as the other was, repent and turn. So what you have here is the fruit of regeneration. 
Regeneration is the implanting of a new nature, says the preacher, and one of the earliest signs of that is a faith in Christ and a repentance of sin and a consequent conversion from that which is evil to that which is good. Now, Spurgeon uh, wants to emphasize here that this repenting and converting are the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, he he says, I'm not going to stop to to prove this because we've preached it to you a thousand times and we're happy to prove it from any point of scripture that you might wish. There never was, he says, any genuine repentance in this world which was not the work of the Holy Spirit. All true conversion is the work of the Holy Ghost and you may rightly pray in the words of the prophet, Turn thou us and we shall be turned. For until God turn us, turn we never shall, and unless he convert us, our conversion is but a mistake. And now Spurgeon shows uh, what a, an accurate and effective persuader he is, because you, like me, might be going, well, hang on a moment, you've just emphasized that this is an active verb, that we are to repent, that we are to turn, and now you've told us that this is something which only the Holy Spirit can accomplish, and that's where Spurgeon goes. You're going to ask me, but the Apostle Peter actually says to us, repent and be converted. That is, you tell us with one breath that these things are the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then with the next breath you read the text, repent and be converted. Yes, says Spurgeon, I do, I do, and I thank God that I've learned to do so. Really good uh, pastoral and evangelistic preaching here. He is uh, predicting some of the questions that are going to arise. He's getting one step ahead of the congregation. He's raising questions that he's quite happy then to answer. And his basic point here is, I don't need to reconcile what God has given me to proclaim. I do not understand how it is that my bedding impenitent sinners to repent should in any way be likely to make them do so, but I know it does. I see it every day. I do not know why a poor weak creature saying to his fellow men believe should leave them to believe, but it does so, and the Holy Spirit blesses it, and they do believe and are saved. And if we cannot see how, if we see the fact, we will be content and bless God for it. So he says that uh, with one hand I'm holding as firmly as any man living to the reality that repentance and conversion are a spiritual work, and I would sooner lose this hand and both, and I would give up preaching that it is the duty of men to repent and believe, and the duty of Christian ministers to say to them, he says, with, with that hand, and you can imagine him holding it out, I hold as firmly as any man living that repentance and conversion are the work of the Holy Spirit, but I would sooner lose this hand and both, you see him holding out the other, than I would give up preaching that it is the duty of men to repent and to believe, and the duty of Christian ministers to say to them, repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So Spurgeon is in this uh, happy place where he's basically saying, I know what God has said in both of these regards, and I'm happy to leave the, the connection between those with God and be obedient on both fronts. And he talks again about some of our hyper-Calvinist friends who are so earnest against anything like exhortations and invitations. But his point is that this is not merely an outward repentance. This is a, a genuine call for a sinner to turn from his sins to Jesus Christ. Repent and be converted in order that your sins may be blotted out. So he says, we tell men to repent and believe, not because we rely on any power in them to do so, for we know them to be dead in trespasses and sins. 
not because we depend upon any power in our earnestness or in our speech to make them do so, for we understand that our preaching is less than nothing apart from God, but because the gospel is the mysterious engine by which God converts the hearts of men, and we find that if we speak in faith, God the Holy Ghost operates with us, and while we bid the dry bones live, the Spirit makes them live, while we tell the lame man to stand on his feet, the mysterious energy make his, makes his ankle bones to receive strength. While we tell the impotent man to stretch out his hand, a divine power goes with the command, and the hand is stretched out, and the man is restored. The power, and this is Spurgeon's point, lies not in the sinner, not in the preacher, but in the Holy Spirit, which works effectually with the gospel by divine decree, so that where the truth is preached, the elect of God are quickened by it, souls are saved, and God is glorified. Go on, my dear brothers, preaching the gospel boldly, and be not afraid of the result. For however little may be your strength, and though your eloquence may be as naught, yet God has promised to make his gospel the power to save, and so it shall be down to the world's end. And that is why Peter is telling men to repent and be converted, because there is a Holy Spirit and that third person of the Godhead works powerfully according to the instruments which he has appointed in order to accomplish his sovereign saving purposes. So says Spurgeon, that's what I require of you. We are not satisfied with having your ear nor your eyes, not content with having you gathered in the house of worship. It is all in vain that you have come here, except, that is, unless you repent and be converted." We are not come to tell you that you must reform a little and mend your ways in some degree. Except you put your trust in Christ, forsake your old way of life, and become new creatures in Christ Jesus, you must perish. This, nothing short of this, is the gospel requirement. No church going, no chapel going will save you. No bowing of the knee, no outward form of worship, no pretensions and professions to godliness. You must repent of your sins and forsake them. And if you do not this, neither shall your sins be blotted out. So, right in your face statements of what it means to repent and be converted and the need for preachers to require that of their hearers in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now he moves on in the second place to make another remark that there was good reason for this command. The text says, Repent therefore. The apostle was logical. He wasn't just sounding off, but giving sound reasoning. What then was the reasoning of the apostle? And what can be the reasoning of the preacher today who is calling for sinners to repent and to convert? Because first of all, like the Jews, you have put Jesus Christ to death. Now you notice here how Spurgeon drops directly into his own time and place. He's uh, transposing the argument. He's not even giving us really the original setting. He's just moving it immediately into the new context. You, like the Jews, have put Jesus Christ to death. Yes, it was literally true of the people to whom Peter spoke. They had a share in Christ's execution. But it's spiritually true of you to whom I speak this morning. Spurgeon wastes no time, like Peter in his original setting, in cutting to the chase. Every sin, in essence, is a killing of God, he says. Do you comprehend me? 
every time you do what God would not have you do, you do in effect as far as you can put God out of his throne and disown the authority which belongs to his Godhead. You do in intent so far as you can kill God. That is the drift of sin. Sin is a God-killing thing. Do you understand then, says Spurgeon, why you need to repent? Because you are a sinner and your sin is in its very essence a a God-killing thing. Then there's a second argument that he whom they had slain was a most blessed person, one so blessed that God the Father had exalted him. In this, Peter's absolutely consistent with what he preached in Acts and chapter 2. Spurgeon says, You who have not believed in Christ have mighty cause for repenting that you have not believed in him, seeing his, he is so good and so kind. He is God over all. He is truly God as much as he is truly man. And he has come into this world for salvation and to despise the Saviour and that so great, great salvation which he came into the world to accomplish is utterly inappropriate. It is wrong. It is unrighteous. It is wicked. Does he deserve this of you? asks Spurgeon. Prince of life and glory, king of angels, adored of seraphs, despised of men for whom your blood was shed. This is why we need to repent. Peter uses another plea, that they'd rejected the blessed Christ but chosen a murderer. They'd sent Christ to the cross and they'd asked for Barabbas to be released. That, says Spurgeon, is something you should repent of, that you rather set your hearts upon the deliverance of a wretch, a wicked man, than upon the innocent Christ. And then there's another argument, and Spurgeon calls this the big hammer on the head of the nail. It is this, that the Lord Christ, whom you have hitherto, up to this point, despised, is able to do great things for you. When I think of the usefulness of Christ to perishing sinners, says Spurgeon, and what he's talking about there is is the fact that everything that a sinner needs is stored up in the person of Jesus Christ and that this is the one who is being despised. He says, when you understand everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has done, there's abundant cause for repentance that you should not have closed with him. And by that he means come to him and clung to him long ago and accepted him to be your all in all. And that's the the argument. And you see how Spurgeon is stepping inside Peter's argument and he's using the very same reasoning with the people to whom he's preaching. He takes that, that shortcut, if you will. Peter said this in his context, and I can say exactly the same thing to you. And there's one other plea, he says. Brothers, I know that through ignorance you did it. You had not heard the gospel. You did not know that sin was so bad a thing, says Spurgeon to some of his hearers. You didn't understand before that Jesus Christ was able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. But now you do understand it. The times of your ignorance God overlooks, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Greater light brings greater responsibility. Do not go back to your sin, lest it become a tenfold sin to you. For if you do in the light what once you did in the darkness, he who winked at you when you knew no better may lift his hand and swear that you shall never enter into his rest because you sinned presumptuously and did despite to the spirit of of God's grace. Spurgeon says, I charge every unconverted man here to mind what he is at in future. He says, you've heard now 
what it means to repent and be converted. You've heard again something of the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ as Saviour. You cannot now turn your back and say, I did not know. And so here's this this building persuasion, this this wrestling with and for souls. Spurgeon's third remark, he says, has to be brief. And it is. Without repentance and conversion, sin cannot be pardoned. Again, you have the sense of a preacher who's trying to make this very short, very straight, very sweet. The expression used in the text, blotted out, he explains by the habit of merchants in those days to uh, make their uh, jottings, their uh, records on tablets of wax. And when the uh, debt was paid, the wax could be scraped over and flattened down and the account entirely disappeared. And Spurgeon says that's what God does with the, the, the sins of those who believe in the Christ who shed his blood. He that repents and is pardoned is, through the precious blood of Christ, so entirely forgiven that there is no record of his sin left. That's the sweetness of gospel repentance. That's the beauty and the glory of God's salvation, that all of these things are utterly taken away. He says, that's the only way that you will ever get rid of the record of your sin, its punishment and its pollution. Rest assured, it cannot be removed except there be repentance and conversion as the result of faith in Jesus. This must be so. There is no other way. The gospel would be the servant of unrighteousness if it were otherwise. My hearer, he says, and now again he's getting to this personal pleading after the model of Peter. You must hate your sin or God will hate you. You must turn or burn. You cannot have your sins and go to heaven. Which shall it be? Will you leave your sins and go to heaven or hold your sins and go to hell? He's almost directly quoting John Bunyan there and the sense of his own need of a saviour. Which shall it be? For it must be one or the other. There must be a divorce between us and sin, or there cannot be a marriage between us and Christ. I have no pardons to preach to you, he says, and you can almost hear the sighing in his voice, who settle your minds to continue in sin. No gentle notes of love at all, nothing but a fearful looking for of judgment and of fiery indignation. He's pleading with them, don't rest in your sins. Don't put off this repenting and converting. Don't imagine that there's some other way that you can be saved from your sins and have your transgressions blotted out. If your transgressions are to be pardoned, if your iniquities are to be put away, if your sins are to be blotted out, the only way that you can come into possession of those blessings is through your repenting and your being converted. There is no other way that your sins will be blotted out. It is believing in Jesus, casting yourself upon him, Him who comes unto me I will by no means cast out. And Spurgeon now loads up these these texts from, from John's gospel and from Isaiah's prophecy. He's wrestling, he's reasoning, he's pleading, he's uh, urging, he's using uh, every tool at his disposal to impress upon the souls of his hearers that this is all or nothing. You must turn from your sins or you will be damned. And so the last remark is this. 
that repentance and conversion will be regarded as peculiarly precious in the future. For my text says that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now, in some respects, I think the the sermon ends on a weaker note, and that's because uh, Spurgeon says there's a, a number of different ways that you can take this, uh, and uh, he, he gathers up a little bit more momentum before he finishes, but my sense is that it's a slight diffusion of his focus right here. He says this is a difficult passage, and again, if you're a preacher, you'll you'll appreciate that if you're dealing with this kind of text and you're seeking to be honest with the text, you, you can't skip these more difficult portions, but you need to do what Spurgeon's doing and you need to try and ensure that you don't lose momentum by getting bogged down in, in speculation or um, yeah, the, the, the exegetical nuts and bolts. Spurgeon attempts it in this way. He says there are three or four meanings attached to it and he's going to give you three of those meanings and he's going to try and make each one of them a thrust of the heart by way of closing application. So in the first place I think it means this, he that repents and is converted shall enjoy the blotting out of sin in that season of sweet peace which always follows pardon. After a man's been thoroughly broken down on account of sin, God deals with him very tenderly. Among the various, very happiest parts of human life are the hours immediately after conversion. You know, he says, how we sing. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? It's the joy of salvation. It's the delight of the prisoner who's been set free. Spurgeon says, you don't know and you cannot tell how sweet it is to be washed in the precious blood, wrapped about with the fair white linen, to have the kiss of the heavenly Father on your cheek. And if you had any sense of it, you would delay no longer. So Spurgeon is entreating. He's not just exposing sin. He's not just declaring judgment against the unconverted sinner who will not turn. He's drawing to Jesus Christ. He's pleading that sinners would come to him who is able to make them truly and lastingly happy. A second sense, perhaps these times of refreshing may also relate to times of revival in the Christian church. And the only way, he says, that you can share in that refreshment of a revival is by your own repenting and being converted. A revival is a great refreshment to the church. And he says, I want a mighty wave of this life to sweep over Great Britain for much we need it. He says we, we desire not just to have more people, but more conversions. He says, I'm longing to see the, the salvation of sinners. He says, we've prayed for it and we saw blessing. Let's plead again. Let's, let's go and preach to the greater congregation in the agricultural hall during the next month. But I can't. I'm restrained by ill health. And he says it's, it's this longing of the preacher. This is, this is Spurgeon's faith and desire in operation. It's hard preaching. It is dull working unless there be results. We must have conversions. As that woman of old said, give me children or I die. So it is with the preacher. He must have sinners saved or he prays to die. And if you're not a preacher, then let me plead with you to enter into that desire of whatever faithful ministers stand before you, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a minister, 
Let's pray that we may feel more of this zeal and desire in our own hearts and not persuade ourselves that it's a day of small things and we shouldn't expect too much. We should expect the gospel to secure God's purposes. Now we weep if that is to bring men under a greater judgment and we plead and anticipate that when the gospel is preached that God will be pleased to save sinners. And then once more, the text means, according to the context, the second advent. Spurgeon uh, goes a little bit in two directions here. Christ is yet to come a second time. Well, that's for sure. Like a mighty shower flooding a desert shall his coming be. In, in his eschatology, he seemed to run now a couple of things together. But his last plea is the one that really strikes home. And this is, as I say, where he, he rebuilds that momentum and tries to pour all the force of all the argument that Peter has used and that he has employed in this text preached on this occasion into his last words. Listen to what he has to say. Oh, if ye repent and be converted, ye shall stand fully absolved in the day of his coming, when heaven and earth do reel, when the solid rock begins to melt, and the stars like fig leaves withered fall from the tree, when the trumpet sounds exceeding loud and long, awake ye dead and come to judgment, when the grand assize is sitting and the judge shall be there, the judge of quick and dead to separate the righteous from the wicked, the Lord have mercy upon you in that day, and so he shall if his grace shall make you obedient to the words of our text repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord you can imagine the preacher stopping in exhaustion at this point you can imagine his voice breaking and his his heart creaking and his eyes weeping as he reaches this conclusion there is earnestness there is directness, there is plainness. As we've said, Spurgeon really turns his back upon anything that is particularly flowery, uh, any kind of verbal flamboyance in this sermon. It is plain, it is straight, it is direct. There is no messing about. It's a beautiful example, not necessarily an easy one to follow, but a great example of evangelistic preaching and pleading and I thoroughly commend it to you. I do hope it's been a blessing to you to listen to this. You can subscribe uh, on a variety of different platforms. We hope that you will. If you can also leave us a review, it will help others to find us uh, if you think it's worth them listening. And you can find other resources like this at mediagratii.org. Do please join with us in uh, reading on through the Spurgeon Sermons or perhaps even just uh, following along with this featured sermon each week. Next week we're reading sermons 808 to 814, and our featured sermon is 813 from Ezekiel chapter 16. Its title is The Privileged Man. So do read that sermon if you can. Sign up to the newsletter if you'd like a link to that text. But join us uh, week by week if God helps us as we study through these wonderful sermons, these sweet examples of a man taken up with his Saviour and willing and able by God's grace to declare the good news to sinners like me and you.